0: Morning. It's good to see everyone here. Uh, whether it be a little bit different circumstances because of Thanksgiving, people traveling, we are glad that you are here. Um, I was reflecting as I was preparing for this sermon this morning uh, just on the nature of preaching itself, and it's very unique. I mean, if a person stands up in front of a group of people and he opens a book and he tells people what the book means and what it says, and You know, sometimes very long periods of time, actually. Uh, It could be, there's a lot of variety in preaching. You have people with totally different personalities. Someone who's very exuberant, flamboyant, charismatic in the pulpit. You have another person who's a little bit more subdued. And just, you know, God in his sovereignty uses people with different personalities, different means to accomplish his purposes through the preaching of the word. And so it's with great delight that I'm here this morning able to preach. Um, and even in preaching itself, there's a great variety in sermon texts. If you think about it, most preaching typically is you know, the, the preacher opens his Bible and goes through three, four, or five verses. That's what we've come to expect. You know, that's what Pastor Ben does here faithfully each week, and we're very grateful for that. And on other times, there is a place for preaching large sections of Scripture. Um, if you think about preaching in terms of farming, you have some preachers, they get out a spade and a shovel and they, they cultivate, you know, one or two verses. And you have others, they may get a tractor or a plow and they may cover a, a, war, a large swath of verses, a number of verses. And that's what I'm going to attempt to do this morning. And so to disp- dispel any fears, uh, this is not going to be an hour and a half sermon uh, your lunch will not be in danger. Uh, this will not be like Acts 20 when Paul preaches to Eutychus and he preaches for a number of hours and Eutychus falls asleep, falls off a third story window and dies. My goal in preaching this morning is not to preach till you're dead. That would be a shame because I don't have the spiritual gift like Paul to be able to bring you back to life. So, But that being said, I do want to preach a large section of scripture, something that we tend to struggle to understand as a unified thought, and that is in the Gospel of Matthew. So if you would open your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5. And I'm also going to do something unique this morning, I want to read the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount, and then it's my intention then to preach the main theme of the Sermon on the Mount this morning. So if you would fasten your seatbelt, this is going to be a roller coaster ride, but I think. What the Lord has for us this morning is a thought that that we really need to consider and it's very important. So Matthew chapter 5, let's read the Sermon on the Mount together. Matthew 5 verse 1 says this, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Do not give dogs what's holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house in the rock. were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Well, if you were counting verses, that's 107 verses. So if I give uh, one minute to every verse, we're gonna be here for an hour and 45 minutes. Uh, That's not my intention this morning. So um, perhaps you're sitting there and you're wondering how in the world could the Sermon on the Mount be put into a single theme? I mean, just look down at your Bibles with me for a second. Maybe it's your Bibles like mine. There's a, there's a heading over various sections of the Sermon on the Mount. And just look through some of those headings with me. You have the Beatitudes, Salt and Light, Christ came to fulfill the law, Anger, Lust, Divorce, Oaths, Retaliation, Love Your Enemies, Giving to the Needy, the Lord's Prayer, Fasting, Lay up Treasures in Heaven, Do Not Be Anxious, Judging Others, asking Will Be Given, The Golden Rule, A Tree and Its Fruit, I Never Knew You, Build Your House on the Rock, How in the world does all that relate together into one single unifying theme? I mean, maybe you've just, your perspective of the Sermon on the Mount has been kind of a collection of, you know, Jesus' finest teachings thrown together into one discourse. And I think a lot of times we don't don't grasp the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. We don't try and wrap our arms around this large section of scripture to understand how it fits together. But that's what I'd like to do this morning. And I think what would be helpful is to think about the nature of storytelling. Okay, everyone, regardless of how old you are, you've tried to tell a story to somebody at some point. It's a universal common human experience. You try and tell stories. And there are two types of storytellers in this world. Good storytellers and bad ones. And maybe some of you are already chuckling to yourself thinking, yeah, I know a couple of bad storytellers. Hopefully you're not one of them. But what is, what is one common attribute of a bad storyteller? Probably they include the most minute details that have no relation whatsoever to the story they're trying to tell we've all heard stories like this someone begins to tell a story and they set the scene very vividly but they just keep going on and on and on with the details the sky was blue there were birds chirping outside it was really hot out they go into the temperature then they start talking about the temperature yesterday and they go on a rabbit trail and they've given so many details you wonder about the even point of the story. You, you've totally even forgotten what they were talking about before they started telling that story. It's the same thing in biographies. If you read a biography and you open up to read about someone's life, you're not, gonna re- you're not gonna open an account of every single thing that happened in their life. There's just no way to put all of that into a book. Every biography, by some degree, is selective in nature. The author selects what, po- what parts of, a, of the person's life they're writing about they want to include. We don't tend to think about that in terms of our Bibles, but it's true. The authors of the books of our Bible have been selective by the Holy Spirit in including specific accounts. And it's especially true in sections of narrative, particularly in theological biography, what we would call the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they couldn't record everything that Jesus did. In fact, John says, if, if they were... There, the book wouldn't be big enough to fit in this world, to include everything that Jesus did. So the authors of the Gospels have had to be been selective in nature. And we don't tend to think about that. But a question that should come to mind when we read Gospels, when we read narratives, when we read stories in the Bible, is why did the author put this here? And this is a question that's very important in helping us understand the Sermon on the Mount. Why is the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel? What is his point? Is there a purpose behind that? There's uniqueness in every portrait that the gospels portray about Jesus. You know, Pastor Ben just preached through Mark, finished about uh, six months ago. And something we saw from Mark is Jesus portrayed as a suffering servant. Luke portrays Jesus as Lord, as Savior. Matthew, on the other hand, portrays Jesus as the Messiah. If you trace that theme all through Matthew, you'll see that. So how does the Sermon on the Mount relate to that? How does it relate to the fact that Jesus is king? He is the anointed one. He is the Christ. And that's what I'd like to uncover this morning. Matthew's account of Jesus is very unique. There's, there's, he alternates between discourse and narrative. Uh, if you study the gospel, you'll see that there are five main discourses of Jesus. And those are alternating between five narrative sections of things that Jesus does. The first of those discourses is this one right here, the one we read. It's the longest one. It's the Sermon on the Mount. And if you go to the other Gospels, you go to Mark, you go to Luke, you won't find an account of the Sermon on the Mount like you find here. You'll find something similar in the Gospel of Luke, but it's much shorter, much abbreviated. And it's not really portrayed as Matthew does in a single unified sermon. So why does Matthew do that? These are the questions we want to ask to begin to understand this section of Scripture Why would Matthew include the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew also has this theme all through this gospel about the kingdom of heaven. Makes complete sense. He's writing about Jesus as king, Jesus as Messiah, Jesus as the Christ. So he would talk about the kingdom of that Messiah, the kingdom of heaven. And so now we come to Matthew's gospel, Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, and I want to try and answer this question of why did Matthew include the Sermon on the Mount, how he did in this form in, in his gospel? And that's with this single unifying theme. that I'm gonna gonna pose this morning. It's that Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in every area demonstrates the true nature of righteousness. Jesus is categorically defining what true righteousness before God looks like and how it operates. I'm gonna try and prove that this morning by two points. Jesus talks about the righteousness that's required of all of us in here to enter the kingdom of heaven, and for those who are in the kingdom of heaven, what that righteousness looks like in practical Christian living. And so I wanna examine those two points this morning. The righteousness required to enter the kingdom of heaven, and the righteousness that those who are in the kingdom of heaven display through their life. So we're not gonna look at every passage, obviously, but I wanna focus in on two primary ones, and we'll go to a couple others. So look at verse 17 through 20 of Matthew chapter five. This is a major key in interpreting the Sermon on the Mount. I want to read just one statement from this this section. Christ came to fulfill the law. Look at verse 20. Listen to this statement that Jesus makes. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Here Jesus posits the kind of righteousness that you need, that I need to be a member of the kingdom of heaven. He says, if our righteousness doesn't exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, we'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a sobering reality, especially when we, we, if we put ourselves in the shoes of the original audience. Think about this with me. Who would these people, the crowds and disciples, who would they have looked to as a demonstration of the righteousness? It's those very people that Jesus is calling out, the scribes and Pharisees. They were the, the, the epitome of righteousness in that culture. They tried meticulously to keep every aspect of the law. If you go to the Old Testament, there are 613 commandments by my count. 240 of the eight of them are positive, 365 of them are negative. Not to mention all the traditional applications of these commandments that the scribes and Pharisees had composed. They tried meticulously to uphold the law of God, to live righteously. And Jesus says, if your righteousness doesn't exceed that, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a shock to that original audience and that should be a shock to us this morning. Because we tend to think of this difference between the Old and New Testament as this. The Old Testament, those 613 commandments, that was the hard testament. They had it hard back then. Wow, we have it so easy being under the new covenant. While that is true in some degree, what is Jesus saying? Under the new covenant, under those who are going to be redeemed under those who will enter the kingdom of heaven. If your righteousness does not exceed the practice of it in the Old Testament, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is making a conclusion based on his authority, on his right. For him to even say this demonstrates he has the authority to dictate who enters and who doesn't enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has authority over something, and that is the law. And that becomes really clear when we look at verse 17. So look with me at verse 17. Verse 17 says this, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus corrects a misconception about his even coming. The Messiah's coming to earth was not to get rid of the law. The Messiah, Jesus coming to earth, was to fulfill the law. And this plays into directly His statement about the righteousness that's required to enter the kingdom of heaven. How? Well, if we've been reading Matthew, this word fulfill has significance in Matthew. We already said that Jesus is portrayed as the Messiah. But in order to be portrayed as the Messiah, he has to be proved to be the demonstration of the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. If you were to go back to the beginning of Matthew, you'll see that there are, from Matthew's Chapter one to chapter twenty eight, there are ten main fulfillment quotations where this same word fulfill occurs. Matthew one, twenty two. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord spoke by the Prophet. Matthew two, fifteen. This was to fulfil what the Lord had spoken by the Prophet. Matthew two, seventeen, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the Prophet Jeremiah. Matthew two, twenty three, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, and, and that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. Matthew chapter 4, verse 14, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. There's this fulfillment theme five times before the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has already been portrayed as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He came to earth. He has the right to say, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees or you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He has the right to that because he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament, what the Old Testament points to, and this becomes even clearer when we look at Jesus' first words in the Gospel of Matthew. So, turn with me to Matthew chapter three, fifteen. Okay, I'm positing that the theme of the Sermon on the Mount is righteousness. Specifically, in this point, the righteousness required to enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is the fulfillment of the law; he has the right to say that. Look at his first words in Matthew chapter three, verse fifteen. First words of Jesus in the Gospel it says this. Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill, what's the, what's the word? All righteousness. Jesus coming to earth he was a fulfillment of the righteousness required. And that should give us great hope because of what Jesus calls us to in our own righteousness. So let's go back to Matthew chapter 5. And I want to show how this theme of righteousness, a greater righteousness, is carried out throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. So here, in Matthew chapter five. Jesus said he's come to fulfill the law. He's not come to abolish it. Well, in what way does he fulfill it? Look at the very next sections. Verse 21, verse 27, verse 31, verse 33, verse 38, verse 43, you have the same phrase. You have heard that it was said, followed by, but I say to you, Jesus is fulfilling the law. He's taking the law beyond the scribes and Pharisees interpretation of it to its correct understanding he's saying you place great stock in the external fulfillment of the law what is most important it's your heart look at look at the first section anger you've heard that it was said verse 21 to those of old you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment but i say unto you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment jesus is saying True righteousness isn't in external obedience to the law. It's found beyond that. It exceeds that understanding of the law. It it goes deeper. And that is that your righteousness, the righteousness required to enter the kingdom of heaven, is this, righteousness in your heart. If you are not righteous in your heart, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a bold statement to make, but that's what Jesus says to that audience. And that's what he would say to us this morning. He would say, you out there this morning, me, you on the live stream, your righteousness must be in your heart. And if it's not, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's sobering. Because when we begin to see Jesus' statements about our hearts, we realize something. Our hearts are not like that. I mean, the the extension of the law that Jesus does here the fulfillment of the law, it, it, it secures in our minds the fact that our hearts are not righteous. In fact, if, if we're even angry with our brother, if we lust, if we envy, if we gossip in our heart, if we think and tear people down in our hearts, at that moment we're not righteous. The only reason you don't you know, have an external display of that sin is because you're afraid of what people will think of you. Which means that you're no more righteous than the person in jail for abuse, for robbery, for murder. You're no more righteous than them because your heart is unrighteous. That's how far Jesus goes. That's the righteousness required. And he makes that clear from verse five, from chapter 5, verse 17, all the way to verse 48. And you might be saying, well, I've done pretty good. But what does Jesus answer? Look at his concluding statement of this section. This first section of the Sermon on the Mount. Look at verse 48 with me. Is, is just pretty good good enough? No. He says, you therefore, as if they hadn't already got this point, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. The answer to the question this morning, are you righteous in your heart? You want to know what the answer is? You're not. You're not righteous in your heart. You are must be perfect in your heart to be righteous before God. Well, that's sobering, to put it lightly. The fact that because of our sinful hearts, we'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Our hearts are unrighteous. So if that's the righteousness required to enter, what's the righteousness required of those who are already in the kingdom? Well, let's move to the next section, And the word righteousness shows up again. Look at the very next verse after verse 48. Chapter six, verse one. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your father who's in heaven. Jesus has already said you're not righteous in your heart. You must be perfect to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now he goes on to speak to those who are a member of the kingdom of heaven. And we'll talk about the how in a moment. But he's talking to these people. They are part of the kingdom of heaven. Hopefully, all of us are included in that. Why? We'll we'll get to we'll get to that in a second. Conclusion of our sermon. But what is his admonition for those who are in the kingdom of heaven? Beware! Beware! You know, I was trying to think of what's a good illustration of you know beware of something. Doesn't mean to beware. Uh, When I was in high school, I was in. Fairly large church in South Carolina, and the neighborhood community of the church was a rougher neighborhood, to put it lightly. Uh, and we'd have these youth events, try and get people to come who are unsaved, preach the gospel, play some games, this sort of thing. And to, to invite people, we'd just go door to door and knock on people's doors. The church had a list of all the people in the neighborhood who were in, you know, in teenagers, and we'd go to their house and knock on the doors. And as we'd walk between the houses, on almost every door or a sign or fence there was a sign beware of dog okay nothing makes you more nervous about walking into a yard than a sign beware of dog because more often than not you can't see the dog the dog's hiding around the back the dog's in the in its cage maybe it's inside and you know you knock on the door you're going to invite someone to come to this event and you just hear a very low growl or a very loud bark. You know, it's very unsettling. The next time you go up to house and it says, beware of dog, you're looking around, you're not going into the fence yet, you're, you're trying to look into the backyard, see, oh, is there, a, is there a dog back there? You're looking on the ground, trying to see if there are any signs of a dog living at this house. Is the dog inside? The worst thing that would happen, and this actually happened to me once, you go up on the door and you knock, and a, door, a dog comes running around the side of the house and comes up onto the porch starts barking at you and biting at you. It's not an enjoyable experience. It's so the next time you want to beware of the dog. You want to heed the sign. When you beware of something, you're cautious. Every time you go to do that, you're on edge. And this is what Jesus is calling the people to. He says, beware of something. And what is it that they must be wary of? It's practicing their righteousness. The very thing that they should be doing, they should be cautious about doing. Now, That doesn't make sense, does it? Yeah. Practice your righteousness. Yes, we should do that. But should I be cautious in doing that? Does it mean that the very practice of my righteousness is not righteous? Now it's kind of confusing. Well, what should they be wary of? It's this: practicing your righteousness in order to, in other words, your motive. And when. Jesus goes to motive. Where is he going? He's going to the heart. Jesus is going back to the heart. Righteousness required to enter, it must be righteousness of the heart. Righteousness of those who are in the kingdom, it must be righteousness of the heart. Your very practice of spiritual disciplines isn't merely formal external fulfillment, external obedience. It's in your heart is your practice of righteousness. Is it Obedient. Is it submissive to God? He says, in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. The problem the, that, that so many of us struggle with is this. Our practice of righteousness is motivated not for pleasing God. It's for pleasing mankind. In what areas does Jesus apply this to? How is this theme played out through the next section of the Sermon on the Mount? Well, just look at verse 2. Thus, when you give... Look at verse five, and when you pray. Look at verse 16, and when you fast. Every one of these things ends with the same statement. Your father who is in secret will reward you. All three of these headings, praying, fasting, giving, all of those, Jesus is applying this statement about practicing your righteousness for the wrong motives. Be wary of that. So when you go to do your spiritual disciplines in the morning. Be wary of of doing that in merely external obedience. Is your heart involved? Some of us place great stock in our rigorous keeping of spiritual disciplines or in our rigorous ability to get a lot of things done. We have busy schedules and we accomplish a lot by God's grace. But what do we place stock in in our righteousness? What is the ultimate test? Who are you when no one's looking? Whatever you are, whoever you are, that's who you are. It's not who you are in this morning in front of all these people. That's not who you are. It's just a facade. Who you are at home by yourself is who you are. When no one's looking, that's who you are. That's a sobering statement for many of us. I think Even the situation, the circumstances we're in because of the coronavirus have, have made this glaringly obvious. People have more time to themselves at home, more time alone, And it becomes painful to people to see what they really are like, to see into their heart. I read a report yesterday that in Japan, in the month of October, there were more suicides in the month of October than coronavirus deaths in Japan the entire year. Okay, Why do you think that's the case? When people have time to themselves, they get a glimpse into their heart. When all the noise in this world goes away, they start to ask heart questions. And what they find is not good. It's discouraging. It's sobering. It's sad. It's no surprise that suicide rates have gone up, not just in Japan, but in this country and across the world. People realize what's in their heart, and what follows is depression, grief. You know, the individual, the classic example is the individual who cleans his car or his room when he's trying to impress someone, but he doesn't actually keep it clean the rest of the week. Maybe some of you are like that. You're Maybe not, maybe not the adults, but some of the, the children or teenagers. Your room is dirty until your parent walks in. and Then you quickly try and clean some things up. Well, why do you do that? Is it because you actually really care for your room to be cleaned? No, it's not. It's because you're trying to please someone. Okay. That's what many of our own practices of righteousness are like. We do it to be seen by men. To please others. This true practice of righteousness results in heavenly rewards. Every one of these sections, praying, fasting, giving, it all concludes with the same theme. You're right, your Father who's in secret reward you. Which makes complete sense when Jesus transitions into the next section in the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking about laying up treasure in heaven. Your focus shouldn't be on earthly reward, getting the praise of men. It should be laying up treasures in heaven. And if you have treasures in heaven, you won't be anxious. You won't be anxious for what's happening in this world. On this earth. That's what he says in verses 25 to 34. And what's his conclusion about being anxious? Look with me at verse 33 of chapter 6. It's the same thing. Seek first, you know this verse, seek first the kingdom of God and what? His righteousness. The theme that Jesus goes over and over and over again to is righteousness. It is your practice of righteousness. In your heart, is it acceptable before God? And the conclusion, as we've already stated, to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be righteous in your heart. We're not like that. If you are in the kingdom of heaven, your practice of righteousness should be for God in your heart, not before men. So what's his conclusion to all this? Well, look at chapter seven. Just when you think you've done a good job, what is our struggle? Self-righteousness. He says, judge not that you will be not judged. He ties it all together here at his conclusion. Now, Our tendency, when we think in our mind, I am righteous, is to look down on other people and say, they're not living up to my standard. So I just wanna go now to application for sake of time. What are the benefits of seeing this picture of heart righteousness? Well, I think the first thing, and that's what he talks about here in chapter seven, is that it's a scathing rebuke of our tendency <sighs> is self-righteousness. If righteousness is conformity to a standard, the standard of God and our behavior, what is self-righteousness? Well, it's one, you've been deceived into thinking, I have kept God's standard. Or two, it's you've, you've gotten rid of God's standard and you've created your own and now you've lived up to that. And you hold other people accountable to your standard of righteousness. Our hearts tend towards self-righteousness that's the inclination of sinful beings to make themselves righteousness make themselves righteous and this sin self-righteousness which the Pharisees were going to be called out for all throughout the gospel of Matthew it manifests itself in particular behaviors what are those behaviors think about this if you're comparing yourself to others to boost your self-esteem particularly in the area of righteousness what are you doing you're saying they're not living up to my standard of righteousness therefore i am elevating my own sense of i have accomplished what god has wanted me to i have now practiced what god has desired of me maybe self-righteousness manifests itself by not taking god's law seriously to its fullest extent you have always thought man it's just super easy now i don't have to make all those sacrifices But you don't really grasp the fact that God commands you to glorify him in every area of your life. You don't take that command to its fullest. You ate breakfast, did you glorify God? On the way to church this morning, did you glorify God? In the live stream, as you prepared to turn on the video and watch this service, did you glorify God? We don't tend to take God's commands to glorify him, him, not ourselves, to their fullest. What about God's commands about thinking. Whatever you think on, Philippians 4, should be pure, lovely, holy, good, just, righteous. Is that really true of us? We tend to relax our understanding of God's expectation for us. Maybe a manifestation of self righteousness is this it's an inability to accept criticisms because one thinks they have hit the moral mark of God's standard. You're above criticism. If I'm righteous in my own understanding, I'm immune to criticism. Someone who comes to me with with our mark, oh, this I'm seeing some weakness in your character. They don't know. I I have hit the standard of God's righteousness. Maybe it manifests itself by frequent beguiling doubt regarding your own position before Christ. Am I really righteous? And that is a question we should ask ourselves. But what is the solution to that? Is it to take your own righteousness, your practice of righteousness? more seriously than God's imputed righteousness he's given to you through the blood of Jesus Christ? Or perhaps this, and I think this is more sobering for most of us, it's a conformity, self-righteousness will manifest itself in a conformity to outward obedience, but we will tolerate sin in our hearts. We will continue to be unrighteous in our hearts. You who would never run screaming and wailing down the street in fear of meeting the next bill, or the future that's unknown for your life after you graduate college, or what your children are gonna do when they're teenagers and adults. You who would never yell out in terror about that, you tolerate fear about that in your heart. You're no more righteous than the person who does that externally. You who would never put on a mask and pick up a weapon to go steal from an apparel outlet, yet you tolerate envious desires in your heart of things around you, whether they be material possessions Or abstract things such as the relationship, financial stability, ease of life, freedom from all your health difficulties. You get so envious of that. You're tolerating that sin in your hearts, although you wouldn't do an external action about that. You who would never commit physical immorality. You tolerate unclean thoughts in your mind and desires toward those of the opposite sex. Desires and thoughts that are unbeknownst to the rest of the people in here. Are you any more righteous than the person who does those things you think about? And Jesus' answer is, no, you're not. You who would never pick up arms to take a life, to murder over such a small disagreement, yet you brood and you seethe in anger internally towards those who've wronged you. You get so frustrated by people's idiosyncrasies. You can't tolerate them. Are you any more righteous than the person who takes a life? You who would never shout loudly in the streets, look at my Bible reading consistency. And yet, you tolerate opening God's word in the morning and allowing your mind to wander about anything to the end of the day when God is desiring to commune with you. You who would never put yourself on a spiritual pedestal in front of others because they would call you proud and arrogant. And yet in your mind, you tear down other people because they don't live up to your standard of righteousness. You, parent, who would never say, I wish my kids were never born, and yet in the midst of stubbornness in the home, you begin to desire they were adults and out of the household, so you didn't have the responsibility of discipling them anymore? Are you more righteous than the person who wishes their children were never born? You know, these questions are what Jesus is driving at. The righteousness required to enter, the righteousness of those who are in the kingdom of heaven, is a righteousness of the heart. So where are you before God right now in terms of your practice of righteousness? And I understand that a lot of this has been rather pointed and negative. So I want to end with the encouragement that Jesus concludes the Sermon on the Mount with. Look at verse 13 of chapter 7. Jesus says this, Enter by the narrow gate, For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. I mean, if we've been reading the Sermon on the Mount and been tracking with this, Jesus commands something that he's already made clear is impossible. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter. And then he commands chapter seven, verse 13, enter. Jesus, you've, you've put an expectation on us we can never fulfill. How is this fulfilled? Well, it's what is the gate? What is the gate whereby we are able to enter the kingdom of heaven? It's Jesus Christ himself. Jesus commands us in this statement, enter through the narrow gate. He says, look to Christ, look to me, look to the one who fulfilled the law. Look to the one whose heart was righteous in every aspect. You know there are some who will try to enter who think they have met the righteousness necessary but they will not. Look at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, "Lord, Lord," will enter the kingdom of heaven. There are some who are trying right now to enter the kingdom of heaven, but what are they doing? They're not looking to Christ. To enter through the gate, the narrow gate has an implicit look. Look to Christ. When you begin to locate sin as being conceived in your heart, being born into your heart, and then dwelling in your heart, you will become guilty. You will become discouraged because you will realize just how sinful your heart is. The devil would love to use that shame and guilt to weigh you down under your dreadful sin. What do you turn to? Who do you look to? Brother, sister in Christ, look to Jesus Christ. Enter by the narrow gate. Whether you've already entered or you need to enter, look to Jesus Christ. Which takes me to one other passage. And I want to leave the book of Matthew now and go to, I mean, if we're going to talk about the righteousness, we we really should go to the book of Romans. So I want to just go to one passage in Romans. It's Romans chapter 10. I think in just reading this, all this will come together. Our need to look to Jesus Christ. How Matthew uses the term righteousness is more focused on our practice and how Paul uses it is generally focused on God's righteousness. But look at the statement that Paul makes in Romans chapter 10. I'll just begin reading in verse 1, almost without comment, to verse 4. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. He's speaking of the Jews, these people who labored so hard to fulfill God's standard of righteousness. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. But look at the encouragement. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The end of the law, the fulfillment of the law is this, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. So whether you in your seat this morning your righteousness is not the righteousness that's required to enter the kingdom of heaven. You've never entered the kingdom of heaven. What are Jesus' words to you? Look to Jesus Christ. Look to him who has fulfilled the law. To you who struggle so much with your motive. What are Jesus' words to you? Stop thinking about other people. Look to Jesus Christ. Turn to him. i ask the worship team to come up here. I just want to read the words of a well-known song that many of us know. Um, it's a favorite hymn of mine, one of them. It's, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All of the ground is sinking sand. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All of the ground is sinking sand. Or the words of the last stanza. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh may I then in him be found, clothed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All of the ground is sinking sand. The words of that hymn were put into it a newer song called Cornerstone, which is the song we'll conclude with this morning. So